Nation Reaching Nations is focused on highlighting innovative stories from cross-cultural, local, and global missions, missions from the majority world, and culturally contextual teaching. The missionaries' stories and idea of this podcast are based on connecting through Houston and serve as an example of how the gospel is spreading from everywhere to everywhere. Our hope is that the stories that you hear on this podcast will help equip you to reach those around you. Hey everybody, I'm Brian. Welcome back to our podcast, Nations Reaching Nations. Uh, with me in the studio today, our brand new studio. We've been doing a lot of construction here, and uh, this is our very first podcast. I have Blandon. Uh, Blandon is a friend of mine at church. He's also led our children's ministry for uh, longer than he wanted, not longer than he wanted to, but longer than he agreed to. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, he's the father of two beautiful girls. And he's married to Chance, who is a fantastic uh, singer. He's also a veteran. He's reminded me here in the studio. Uh, we'd had a conversation. He's always telling me I don't listen. Apparently, uh, that's that's true. Uh, I do listen. I'm just very very forgetful. <laughs> anyway, welcome. I'm uh, Blandon. I'm so glad that you are here today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Brian. I appreciate it. So, when we started this conversation. Um, about having a podcast, having a panel to talk about race issues. Of course, we've done this in the past. Yes. Uh, for those who might not be aware of that, the YouTube channel is YouTube slash Nations Reaching Nations. You can just find it. There's a couple of those uh, really good conversations we had there. Um, you know, so this is this has been born out of many conversations, but kind of the social context recently, obviously, is all of the protests that have been happening yes. in response to uh, a couple of different events and shootings. And since that time... It's just kind of snowballed yeah. uh, because it's taken us, I don't know, what, a month or two to get this, yeah. to actually get this together. Yeah. And so all the things I wanted to talk to you about, I feel like, are old news. But I think it's still relevant. <laughs> I think I think we can still have a go at it. I okay. think we can still, like, but hash it out. But there's so many yeah. new topics, right? Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Like, it, it's sort of like trying to hit a moving target. It just keeps on moving. Yeah. So um, let's let, let's kind of unpack this layer by layer. Okay. Um. I know that you hold a number of unique views, um, <laughs> and I'm programmed to think that your views are unique because all of the things that I read, all of the things I hear tell me that uh, the, the black opinion on things yes. is this one narrative. Yes. And uh, I, I'm aware because I've, I've talked with you and a bunch of other people that uh, even amongst just the people I know, which is not a, an extensive group. Yeah. There's a lot of variance in opinion. So can you kind of lay out some of those lines of demarcation on on these issues? Let, let's take something like the protests and George Floyd specifically. Like, what yeah. are the different kind of viewpoints on this? Yeah. So I, I think that's very important that you bring out that that I bring out that we continue to talk about that black culture and black people are not monolithic. Right. Um, we all don't think the same. There can't be this, you know one voice that voices everyone's uh, opinion if you want to respect, like, you know, the the nuanced experience that we all have. And my experience is very nuanced. It's very different from mm-hmm. other people's experience. 
and even so much that it's different from other black Christians. Right. Um, I don't I don't share the same view as other black Christians have adopted. I think because and once again, this is not for me to sound prideful, but I, I thank God for the gospel. I thank him for um, illuminating truth to me in such a way that I see the gospel throughout life. And I don't just segment it off for Sundays and Wednesdays or just when I'm in a church setting. Um, it has just permeated my life and it is the lens in which I see the world in. And so I can't uh, pick and choose where I add the gospel, mm-hmm. add a gospel lens to something. And so by that token, even in the recent events, I can't just say, oh, I'm black. I There's this tribalistic view. I, I feel the same way as everybody else does on this topic. No, because I'm a Christian first and my allegiance and loyalty is to Christ. I have to think from a biblical lens. And I would encourage other black Christians to take that same view. So I think that's the first line, um, not being a part of the group think. Okay. Um, just wherever society and black culture is taking me, I can't, I can't just land there. So, so you've, you've done the thing that a lot of us do in a debate where we go, I believe in the biblical doctrine of, and then we say our opinion. Um, so I, I, I love your views on gospel and race and letting it permeate everything. I think that's such an important thing, whether it's about race or about politics or about yeah. whatever, right? The God, I mean, for Christians, for those yes. in Christ, the, the gospel is that foundational level. You can't yeah. get past that. Um, but I've, I've also learned, you know, I grew up in a very, uh, uh, a, a very st- strict environment in terms of how we saw theology. And mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, our pastor would talk about, well, no good Christians think this or that, right? Like no good Christians, no smart people believe in universalism. And then I read C.S. Lewis and of course he's a smart person yeah. and he believes in some yeah. variation of universalism. Yeah. Um, so your Maybe to state more clearly, what would your view be on uh, on the current situation regarding the riots, uh, George Floyd, et cetera? So, so you're saying your gospel position, but I don't, I don't know that everyone can visualize. Right. What does that look like? How would you, you know, all these different levers you could pull on these different <laughs> – like they're trying to put you on a flow chart right now. Right, right. You have to, you have to <clears throat> kind of label it. Um, so I would not take – what I see in the world currently right now is the postmodern leftist view, leftist agenda. Um, so as a black person, I do believe that um, all black lives matter. Um, but I would not affirm the hashtag nor the movement in any way. I do believe the movement is satanic, demonic, seeking to destroy, as it says in its um in its own tenets, the natural family um, seeking to take down government, seeking to take down uh, the patriarch, as it says, um, wanting to put um, queerness on display um, and empower that and empower uh, intersectionality among black people. So more or less, it's a uh, it's an exchange of power from whiteness to blackness. And I mm. think that is extremely divisive um, in our nation as well as in our church. And I do not subscribe to that. Um, okay. So on the one side, we have kind of a gospel view of race. Um, on the other side, we have 
uh, an ironic Marxist view on race. Absolutely. I guess we could say. Um, but what would be, you know, so, I mean, I'm sure we know Christians that are in both camps, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there, there, there's more than one of you that thinks the way you do, but but I, we also know, and we you know, we're on Facebook, we see the other camp. But what are kind of the stops in between those two? Yeah, yeah. So, I think the stops in between those two, um, they kind of reflect, yeah, understanding that there are um, problems in the black community that don't exist outside of the community. Um, so I think police brutality. Um, against black people has been put on display as kind of a a major marker. Or let's say this, that racism is the is the most dominant issue and problem in America. And I don't believe that's true. I believe there is racism. I believe there is prejudice. I do believe those things. I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm just saying I don't believe they are um the hill in which we all need to be dying on, nor the issues that have led to um, so-called uh, major problems in the black community. Um, I believe that fatherlessness is the number one issue. Um, the denigration of the the black family is a huge issue. Um, lack of education uh, and not lack of resource in education, but lack of preference and pushing education mm-hmm. um i think a huge issue is abortion um 46 percent of the black race has been exterminated since roe v wade so that's over 60 million babies wow. um so that's a huge issue um and i think groupthink is another huge issue groupthink in politics um i think it's like 95% of black people just vote straight Democrat without looking at policies. And those policies don't align with a lot of uh, those values in the black community. And I also think no one really wants to address the the fact that there is a large sect of criminality inside of the black community. Um, and then the kind of phrases that get tossed around, you know, and I think that's it goes with any criminal enterprise that, you know, snitches get stitches, but even more so in a in a group think where you have a us versus them. Mm-hmm. And so even if we're doing something wrong, we can't report on us. We can only report when they do something wrong. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So. In the. In the panel discussion we were part of, our most charged question was yeah. about, at least in the first panel, the second yeah. one we got into deeper issues, but on the first one we kept it nice and light, and our, our most charged <laughs> question was about uh, Marvel Comics and, and the Black Panther. Yes. And and I might have had something to do with the way in which I had everybody sitting on the stage so that your opinion would come out last. Yeah. So that it would have the intended effect. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Well, because if we'd put you in the middle, it would have never gotten all the way down the line. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> it would have just stopped at yours and we wouldn't have heard the other. So we needed to get everybody out first. But one of the things that you mentioned in that was that you were uh, – you, you feel this pressure uh, kind of from the the anonymous they out there that I'm not allowed 
to not like this movie. Yeah. It's expected of me to like this movie, support this movie. Yes. But the you know one of your many dimensions is like you're in here wearing a Marvel shirt. I am. Uh, is your love of comic books? Yes. And so your whole thing was from an artistic and comic book standpoint, they didn't they didn't nail it. They didn't nail it. But no. you were feeling this kind of like silencing, like shh, 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 don't say that. Right. And I think that's probably a good metaphor to understand some of what we're seeing in social media. So I think this whole question started as a question about race, but now it's a question of who gets to control the narrative Yes. and what happens to people who disagree. And I think, I mean, how do you see this playing out on, like currently it's mostly social media, Yeah. even, uh, you know, proper news uh, companies, Yeah. which they are companies. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're getting into the social media game and yeah. it's actually working out really great for them. Um, how does all of this play out on social media? Uh, it plays out in what we now see is cancel culture, right? Um, if you disagree with the tribe, if you disagree with the group think, then you are um, canceled. Um, and that means that you're mobbed against. That means that your name is slandered. Um, that means that you are denigrated. That means that because they don't care for your opinion and I like to have my opinion be based in fact, I don't mm-hmm. like to have my opinion be based in my feelings. Um, so if I have an opinion, it's something that I've researched. And sometimes I say I don't have an opinion about that because I haven't researched it enough. I don't know enough about it to speak about it. So I don't want to have an opinion from this Oh, I only feel this way because this is this is what it sounds like to me. So then if they disagree with that opinion, then it it becomes like we were talking about the other day, this ad hominem where you just attack me and my character or Mm -hmm. how I look and uh, or whatever, whatever kind of, you know, oh, your feet stink like that kind of thing. (laughs) Like it makes (laughs) something ridiculous, irrational. It makes no sense. And so that's that's what's being played out now. Like you you are you know, basically being bullied at this point by by the mob, by this groupthink. And and I think people have a real concern about that because they still want to be approved of on social media. This is, you know, you put out these these cute pictures and you portray your life in this way because you're looking for man's approval. Mm-hmm. And so cancel culture speaks directly to that. Yeah. So who is controlling this this group narrative? Because I think anywhere outside of the narrative itself, no one is aware that there are counterexamples of any shade. Yeah, yeah. I think um, for for a large part, we see um, a lot of progressive liberal voices. Hollywood definitely is is playing into the narrative. I don't know if you've if you've seen, you know. A lot of white liberals are are playing into this. I take responsibility. It was kind of or and then you have um, liberal politicians as Nancy Pelosi is wearing like a kente cloth and kneeling. And um, so I think these are the voices. But then also um, from inside the black community, a lot of, you know, liberal black celebrities uh, lending their voice to this and and selling victimhood, really. Mm that you will always be oppressed. Um, white people will always be the oppressor, even stating that some white people, all white people are just born racist, which is just not true. And But that's how you have to sell victimhood. You have to sell it as a perpetual state. Because if you say someone can come out of it, 
then they no longer have an excuse for why they're not succeeding. Mm. But they will always have an excuse for not succeeding if they're always a victim. And they can always say, oh, well, this person is keeping me down. I don't have what I deserve or in, I'm entitled to mm-hmm. because this person has it and they've taken it from me and they've taken all opportunity from me, which is just not true. And you can you can even even in the system of capitalism, um, as Thomas Sowell says, um, you know, prejudice will cut will cut out any capitalistic gain. Because there's something to be had from someone who is different from you and they can add to that job market. So if you cut them out just because of prejudice, you're basically cutting your nose off to spite your face. Mm -hmm. So no surprise, a lot of this is happening both during the time of quarantine and uh, during an election cycle. And so, you know, you mentioned some of the Democratic leaders, uh, you know, kneeling and and putting the, the cloak on. Um, you know, of course, Trump was known for tear gassing protesters to get them out of the way for him to step up on a church uh, porch and hold up a Bible. And I think whichever side you're not on, you can see the hypocrisy of the other side. Mm. But I think a lot of times because of how politics is so divided right now, so polarized right now, it's very easy to see the hypocrisy of the other side and not your own. And what that means is essentially your own side can manipulate and control you. Yeah. And uh, we see this every election year. You know, politicians come in and they, they lick their finger and they stick it up in the wind and they go, <laughs> which way is the wind blowing right now? All right. I mean, Rick Perry, um, I'll pick on my little brother. He was a big Rick Perry fan. Um, and I, I, I called him uh, Governor Zoolander. Um <laughs> Yeah, Rick Perry promised to build the wall. You know, you'd never heard him talk about this. And then two weeks before the election, he promises to build the wall across the border with Mexico. And those who were excited about that as a position, you know, of course, were magnetized to this. And then, you know, two weeks after the election, he goes, well, it's really too much money, uh, which is what we knew all along. So how do you, how, you know, how do you see the media playing? What is their end game? in how this is being teased out to political advantages? Um, Well, I definitely think that, I definitely do think more media outlets are left-leaning than uh, more conservative-leaning. And that's just my opinion. I'm sure somebody's going to be like, what? What is he talking about? No, people are in favor. I I do. It all depends on what side you're on. Right, right. (laughs) Um, And I, you know, hey, I have no qualms about stating my side. I, I do have a very conservative view. Um, I do um, and have appreciated the policies that President Trump has put in place. Now, do I agree with everything that comes out of his mouth? No. But is is that true of any man? Yes, that is. That's going to be true of any man. Now, has he made some missteps and some errors in communication? Of course. I mean, but that's what happens when you come off the cuff and you're not you're not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Okay, okay. And, He's actually a perfect example of this. Yeah. Him and every politician. Yeah. Okay, every politician has their their shtick, if you will. Yeah. Uh, look at George Bush, W. Yeah. Um, you know, he sounds like a cowboy. Uh, he's went to school in the Northeast. His family's from the Northeast. Not a single other Bush has that <laughs> accent. Yeah. And so, like, he sounds like he's kind of dumb, mm-hmm. but I think he plays that to his advantage. Yeah. Clinton played his charm. Obama played his... Uh, intelligence and uh, charm absolutely and, his charisma and Trump is playing his man I just speak right from the heart yeah 
Uh, Rick Perry also did that. He would stand up on stage and throw his speech down. But it's so obviously <laughs> staged. But I think politicians who make it to the national level, obviously, are, it doesn't look staged. It yeah. looks like that's really that's really him. But this is exactly what I'm talking about. Is I think a lot of politicians use their side. They they speak to their side's truth. Yes. Right. And so there's so many people. Uh, particularly after Obama, that were very upset. And yeah. just for the record, I voted for neither of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm libertarian, so I don't have to ever. I don't have <laughs> ever have to own any of our policy decisions because we'll never have somebody make some. So uh, it's a really convenient position to hold. Um, but yeah, so they, you know, they, they 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 speak to their side's truth, and then they can just manipulate them. Yeah, and. I mean, I'm an outsider looking in, but I, I feel like some of what I see going on, and, and there's another lady, I cannot think of her name. She's super eloquent in how she speaks. Uh, uh, African-American lady. She spoke before, testified before Congress recently. Are you talking about Candace Owens? Yes, Candace I, Owens. I love Candace Owens. Now, I'm going to get some flack because I love Candace Owens. I love Candace Owens. I love Larry Elder. Um, I love Tom Sowell. Okay. So. Uh, yeah, and so she actually makes the point, um, and I think it was one of our Wilcrest folks that shared it, so, so we have people at, at our church sharing on all sides of this issue, which oh, is absolutely. kind of interesting to me. Um, but she, you know, she was basically saying, hey, look at what year it is. Not that this isn't a tragedy, but this happens every single year. Why do we only care about yeah. it in an election year? Yes, yes. And because so, it's a trap. Yeah. It's, a, it's a trap to, to polarize people and to get them out there. And I, I, once again, I think it's a left-leaning trap because 95% of black people are voting Democrat and they want to ensure that. So in an election year, you have to you have to bring out all the stops. You have to bring out systemic racism. You have to bring out police brutality against black people. You have to bring out racism as the major issue in America, like the the overarching sin of whiteness, which is divisive. But it works each and every time because you have to sell victimhood. Mm hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm coming from a very different background. Uh, I was homeschooled, and uh, I was homeschooled at a time where it wasn't very popular. Yeah. And, of course, you know, we're reading lots of missionary biographies. We're reading lots about uh, communist China and what was then still communist USSR, or had just, USSR had just broken up, but communist Russia. And... There was always just ingrained in me, which is why I fit in with libertarian politics, the idea – and I th- actually think our whole system of po- politics is built on this – distrust of government. Mm. I actually think one of the kind of political wars we're going through is between those who still distrust government and those who see government as some kind of solution. They might disagree on what that solution is, but there's some sense that it's going to fix it, whereas some of us think well, – I'm kind of a political atheist actually um, – but my family's big fear was that since this was such a new thing, it wasn't really tested out legally or even pragmatically to know how will the schools respond. We were seeing stuff come out of California where they took a much heavier-handed approach in how they were handling uh, homeschoolers. So we were just past the hippie era of mm-hmm. it was only hippies mm-hmm. homeschooling, um, and we were kind of into the era where it was actually real school, but it wasn't tested. And so my parents' big fear was to see the CPS roll up or to see the sheriff roll up. And so, like, some of that was kind of ingrained in us um, just growing up. And so, you know, when I look at some of these issues with, with brutality, I think one of the disservices the media is doing and everybody who buys in is playing into is a lot of these issues affect all of us at a human level. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it might affect you know black people disproportionately. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean, not fine that it's happening, but fine with with admitting that. But the reality is, if we make it a white black issue, all of a sudden, you know, a significant population of the country can go, oh well, this issue doesn't apply to me. Mm-hmm. When in the reality, this applies to all of us. I remember the whole Black Lives Matter when it came out, and there was a Blue Lives Matter counter protest in Dallas. And there was a man who shot a police officer. Um, do you remember this? Yeah, uh, they actually shot several police officers. Yeah, yeah. and he went into a, a parking garage. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you shoot a police officer, we all know how it's going to go. But there were a couple of stories that got buried. Number one, he was a veteran. Yeah, and so there's a story of we don't treat our veterans well, mm-hmm. and they come back, you know, mentally broken up and we're not helping them heal. Uh, Number two was the fact that the police killed him using a drone and an explosive device. And so, again, like from my background, I see a militarized police as a huge detriment to liberty and to a safe society. And I'm appalled. And at, at work, like so, you know, you talk about being in the black community and you have a counter opinion and, you know, they want to silence that. Well, the same thing is, is true. I was predominantly working around white people as in the oil field at the time. And, mm-hmm. and I kind of suggested, hey, don't we all think that a local police force having explosives and a drone to deploy the explosives just in the way that our military, which I'm totally fine with them having it, they're mm-hmm. military. Mm-hmm. Don't we think that's bad for all of us? And, man, I was just shouted down. In the middle of an office, people are shouting at me. I'm like, I'm just asking the question, y'all. Right, this just seems right, bad. Right, right, right. Like, these guys aren't trained, you know, in the deployment of explosives. This is bad for so many reasons. Um, but it seems like everything just got, like, like the, the narrative has contours, and it just got flattened to be this, look at how bad it is. When in reality, it's like this guy, I mean, I'm not supporting him shooting a police officer, but before that, this guy's a hero. He's 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 fought for our freedoms, and... Yeah. Served his country. Yeah. And- yeah. And I, I, once again, I just think it's it's nuanced because just kind of going back to you talking about police brutality and then maybe disproportionately affecting black people. I think. And I not that I think I know um, because there are more interactions with black people because there is a disproportionate amount of criminality in the black community that police. I mean, with some with some warranted understanding, know that when they interact with a black person, like if they do do something that's out of the way, they're going to be automatically considered a racist. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually they're 17 times less likely to shoot a black person than actually being shot by a black person. Like that's the data that supports that. And so with that understanding I I would be somewhat apprehensive too to understand that if I'm to engage them and actually do my job, I would be seen as a racist. But if I engage them with too much caution, that I could lose my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's real. That's a that's a real thing. Um, you know, black people only make up 13 percent of the the America, the society. However, you know, almost 80 percent of the crime. Um, so that tells me there's a problem there, there, but that's, 
I don't think it's the problem that everybody is screaming about. I don't think it's the problem of systematic racism. I think there's a problem internally in the community, in the culture. And I think, uh, once again, that comes from coming from single parent homes, not having mm-hmm. a father in the household. Like before, you know, there was this there was this Moynihan report that came out and he was at that point, like so surprised that 25 percent of those households didn't have a father in it. it that was unheard of because at of that which household uh, a black household. OK. And it was only maybe 11 or 10 percent of white households that didn't have you know, a father that had like, you know, illegitimate children. And he was like, man, this is a huge problem. Well, that number has completely flipped. Uh, Me and my wife and our friends who are married only make up 30% of black people who are married. So an alarming 70% are not married, um, come from single uh, parent household. Does that just break down ethnically or is that also just generationally being younger people? I think it, it breaks down ethnically. Okay. Um, and also because, once again, uh, welfare has has been incentivized, right? So if if people understand that if if women understand that they can marry the government in such a way that they'll give them housing, they'll give them food, they'll give them benefits, then what is the need for me to get married? And as we kind of talked about, riding on the coattails of the civil rights movement, you know, we have this kind of sexual revolution going on there. Right. Uh, free love, free sex. And so, yeah, I can have sex with anybody who I want to and I can be provided for. That that's that's horrible for any society, but then also for a society and a culture um, who now does not value marriage, who values autonomy from kind of the 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 cultural norm of marriage. And so I think all of these have played into you know why there's so much lawlessness and so much criminality on this particular sect mm-hmm. of of the black community and so and and that's what i'm saying just going to that just understanding like hey you you see like people like Denzel Washington coming out and saying uh, you know i had a father at home you know and this is this is what kept me out of criminality when my other friends were doing these these criminal things because i had this example you yeah. know, fortunately for me, I also had a father figure. I had a stepfather, but he wasn't. But my father was not a part of my life, but I still had a man in the house. My mm-hmm. mother remarried and there was still a man in the house. And so there's a level of that that also kept me from criminality where I'm seeing other people who did not have a father in the household right. in these neighborhoods. They're still committing these criminal acts yeah. and, and, and running with people and getting this peer peer to peer approval. Uh that that I didn't have to deal with. I, I think fatherlessness that's a that's a big issue and I think it impacts all communities now yeah. because I, I think some of those statistics you're talking about uh, again they may they may be disproportionate one community to the other but I would say amongst all younger people we just see fewer marriages happening. Yeah. You yeah. Know, there's a lot more shacking up. Yeah. A lot more just having kids and I guess they're making social arrangements and how they're going to take care of it cuz marriage is also a legal protection for everybody. Right. Um I, I've I've watched some of the police incident videos. Of course, they're floating around, and there are so many that uh, you know. I'm here in Texas. Love guns. Grew up in a gun family. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we're we're Cajun. We we hunt. We're we're fine with all of that. Yeah. Um, and so I I can remember from early childhood the the gun safety 
lessons that my dad drilled into me. Right. Drilled, and, right. And, and, and honestly, in my life, owning guns has saved me from so many near accidents. Right. Uh, accidental, like just all kinds of problems that could have come about. And I see some of these, uh, there's one video where a police officer, he exits his vehicle, the incident's happening in front of his vehicle, he runs around the back, he draws his gun while he's running towards the back, puts his finger on the trigger, he's in a neighborhood, fires one bullet towards the back of his vehicle, like Mm -hmm. just down the street, Mm -hmm. rounds the corner of his vehicle, fires another, in his body cam, you can see him point his gun right across a fellow officer, and then he goes on and he shoots the guy that they're wrestling with. So he fired, I think, at least two or three shots, uh, pointed the barrel at another officer, and then just what felt like randomly shot uh, somebody they were trying to apprehend. Mm-hmm. And I saw that and I immediately thought, now I have no way of knowing does this guy have a father or not, but I thought, who's his daddy? Like That was my, <laughs> that yeah. was my first thought, <laughs> you know? Was how, like, we've lost a sense of courage that I think having a father, like, dads make us do things that moms don't. Yeah. All right? I'm just going to yeah. say that. Y'all can send yeah. me a nasty email. No, they ab- it abs- it's absolutely necessary. I, I make my kids struggle in ways that my wife doesn't. I mean, she has a very different and important role in their development, but, yes. but I have uh, the same thing where I'm going to make them struggle and, you know, force force some courage into their life, and I think we've we've seen a lot of that. So I think... Even in the police force, you know, like we, we could look at the kind of criminality element you're talking about and go, well, fatherlessness is an, uh, an issue. But I would say even in officers being, you know, what seems to be a little trigger happy or not as disciplined with, yeah. with their finger yeah, is, is an equal thing. I, I want to talk about the law for a minute. Um, so you mentioned criminality being higher in the black community. Yes. Um, have you seen 13th? Yes, I have. Okay, of course we you have. we actually I actually told I you, you to watch it. Okay, yeah, <laughs> cool. Um, so in the movie, they talk about you know some of the laws that yeah. are uh, discriminatory. Of yeah. course, like the United States, race aside, we have the highest incarceration level of any country in the world, mm-hmm. free or otherwise. Yeah. Um, then when you break it down on ethnic lines, the numbers get even worse. So they make the case that some of the laws themselves are. Yeah, like over things like uh, you, you know crack, uh, you know the law the the punishment is steeper for the drug that is used in the black community versus the same drug in a different form used in the white community. Mm-hmm. Is there something to their case? Um, I think there might um, be something to their case, but what I guess what I wanted to speak to out of thirteen is that we overlook the issue that you're still committing a crime, right? Right. So if there is no crime... Yeah, the real answer is <laughs> white or black, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. <laughs> that's the that's the real thing, right? But but you want to make this, this line of, oh, well, you know, for the same crime, it's a crime. It's a crime. So if you know as a community, right, that the legal system, or you, you believe that, if you believe that, I'm not saying that's my belief, but I'm saying if you hold to, if you commit a crime as a black person, the severity is going to be hammered down more on you than a white person, then why take the risk of committing the crime? Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm saying if if that is your belief. Mm-hmm. It should why be a deterrent. Le- yeah. Why play it out? Yeah. But, okay, so I agree, don't do crime. <laughs> but but one of one of the elements of free society 
and I would say one of our ideals, it, it may not be the real, uh, but but an ideal we have as Americans is equal application of the law, regardless of race, regardless of religion, right. of gender, right. of uh, status. Yeah. Uh, there was some white lady that had done something a while back. I can't even remember what it was, but every like things are being tried in the you know, in the courts of public opinion these days. Absolutely. And we see this with the officers. And I mean, I think some of the calls for justice seem to have uh, have had a good effect on uh, the local system doing its job. Yeah. And maybe had the spotlight not been shown, it wouldn't have happened. I'm, I'm You know, I think there's something to that. Um, but there's also... Um, there's also this sense where when things... When everything is going to be tried on Facebook... This is just mob rule. And again, this is bad for all of us. Right. Right. And so I, I think of a, I think of a couple of cases, actually. Um, I think of the case of of O.J. Simpson, which is which, you know, truly polarized and, you know, had the nation divided. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about when we talk about this, um, we talk about black people committing crimes and severity. Um, I think there was a lot of evidence that pointed that he did commit this crime. However, his celebrity and his, you know, legal team, amazing um, at kind of skewing facts. And um, the prosecution just didn't do it that way. The defense did it that way. And so his defense, coupled with money, coupled with celebrity, allowed him to be seen in a certain light. Mm -hmm. Um, Same thing can be said uh, for R. Kelly. Uh, the musician, right. and with his first stint, you know, not now that that the public opinion of him has changed, but before when he was, you know, making all this music that everybody loved and agreed with. I I believe I can fly, and you know, you know, Gotham City, and he's making all of these records that people are dancing to. They use at their weddings, and not just black people, but just people in general, right? Right, um, and so. When people are actually coming out against him for being a pedophile and having child pornography, at that time it wasn't a big deal. People did not care. They just um, turned the blind eye. They turned a blind eye. And so he was released from that. He was exonerated from those charges. Um, so, yes, I think it is coupled with how you're seen in society, um, which I'm not saying is right or wrong. I'm just saying yeah. that's how that's how it's being played out. So it's not saying that if you're a black person that you are definitely going to get more um, justice or there's going to be a more severe uh, penalty for you. It's it's basically how you are perceived um, in that case, in this world. Mm-hmm. And if you have money, you know, that's just that's just the overarching opinion. If you do have a little bit of money, it's probably going to go in your way. It's probably going to go yeah. your way. But if you don't. You're 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 most likely to be incarcerated. Yeah. The the part of the moral of that story is that uh, if you can buy better lawyers, your chances yeah, increase. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think significantly. And I think that's why even as as we see, like if you are a black drug dealer, black drug pen, and you can afford a better lawyer, that you're gonna get off. Even if you're even if you're selling crack, you're gonna get off. But if you are like low-level crack dealer you get caught you get this um you know also due to you know that 1994 crime bill where you know where black people are seen as or black young men are seen as you know super predators you know that 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 kind of coined phrase 
that um, Joe Biden had a hand in, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton. Um, but people forget about that. People, right. you know, and all because of their, you know, their political ideals, you know. So you'll see a lot of black people out voting for Joe Biden being very forgiving of him probably in November because now he's made this comment, you know, if if you're black, you'll vote for me. Or if you're not black, you're, you know, what whatever kind of rhetoric he used on The Breakfast Club. But yeah. but they forget all of that past history. Yeah. But but on the flip side, you're coming after like a guy like Jimmy Fallon who did, you know, this skit 20 years ago. And now you're calling for his job and calling for him to be canceled. So um, it's a very fickle thing. And so there's there's a lot of hypocrisy on that end, which I don't like to play into. Um, yeah. Well, and, and that's one of the interesting things as it regards the laws and our lawmakers. Again, the narrative gets set for us that one side, one party is for us and the other side is not. Yeah. And the reality is there's people in each party that are for different groups yeah. and are against different groups. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at particularly in the drug laws, uh, you know, this started with Reagan and then Bush and basically every president, yeah. Republican or Democrat, white or black, yeah. has in some way carried through these laws which in the most critical way we would say, you know, are punishing black people for the same crime disproportionately to white people for the same crime. Right. And so it's it's not always a question, a question of race or even party. Um, I mean, and here's where the race question skews everything. Uh, sin is sin. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We're Absolutely. all dirty, Absolutely. rotten scoundrels and we've all sinned and deserve God's judgment. Um this goes to our conversation we were having in the hallway about racism. Let's let's bring some of that in now. How yeah. have you seen the definition of racism change? So it it has definitely changed, but I think it's it's always been understood differently as well. Okay. So you know, classical definition of racism is you know adding value or taking away value uh, based on your perception or or someone's uh, ethnic group, right? Their ethnic identity. So. By that definition, anyone can be a racist, right? I can definitely be a racist because I can devalue a white person based on them being white. Right. Me seeing them and saying, oh, you're a white person. I I don't value that. I don't value you. And same can be said for a white person, Hispanic person, Asian person, whatever. Anybody can be a racist with the classical definition that has been set out. Now, 2020, they're looking to revise the definition of racism. Um, to include this element of prejudice and power um, because prejudice is just not enough. Um, there has to be some kind of influence of power that can be exerted with that prejudice, um, which now excludes a whole group of per uh, people from racism. So if you don't have power, i.e. the oppressed group, i.e. black people, you can't be racist. Mm. Um which I think is detrimental because and not biblical, not not part of the gospel, because then it's saying that you, in essence, can't commit that sin. Mm -hmm. And we all know that sin is uh, is equal opportunity offender. Right. So like, we're, we're all in it. We're all in it. Um, so I think this is going to um, be a major milestone in how people talk about racism. And it already it already has been. So. Um, this has already been the mindset of black community. Now it's just being uh, perpetuated by, you know, the the leftist 
elite, you know, the, the people who go to the Ivies and um, now they're adopting this view and now they're all calling for it to be changed uh, in our our lexicon right now. So hmm. that seems like a really dangerous shift because, you know, I've I've traveled all over the world and I've found racists in every country. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Sometimes they were racist against me. That's, yeah. a, that's okay. You know, yeah. Americans, we've, we've broken some stuff in the world. Yeah. We've beaten up a lot of people and taking their lunch money. Right. <laughs> um, sometimes they were, I mean, they were racist as a, like a reverse racist where they gave me un, undue respect mm. because of my Americanness or my mm-hmm. whiteness where mm-hmm. the laws didn't actually apply. To, I mean, literally did not yeah. apply to me, yeah. which felt very uh, unnerving to me where my expected norm is that they should apply equally to everybody. Yeah. Um, but I've also seen them be racist against each other, be racist against the guys in the next country. And so to add that element of power to the definition really skews the whole, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely dangerous language. Um, and, but now I don't think people will be talking past each other, um, because now more of this kind of liberal speak is being adopted just across the board mm-hmm. where, before you would have a, a person who understood the traditional and classic definition of racism and saying, hey, wait, but you can be a racist, too. And then you have this, you know, sect of black people who are or, you know, anybody who's saying, no, I can't be racist because I'm being oppressed. And it's like, but that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But now that's kind of that's kind of seeped into, you know, our culture. And now it's changing language. And it's changing definitions. It's changing the standard uh, by which we judge each other. And I, I just think it, it's 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 super divisive. And once again, this comes out of that um, this critical race theory um, that we understand that is is that is Marxist in nature, but it it goes deeper than that. It goes it goes deeper. Um, it, it speaks to all of the terms that you hear going on, like white privilege and white guilt, and which I don't think we should use. I don't. I don't think um, we should use white privilege um, because there is a level of privilege just being an American. There's a level of privilege just being a Westerner. True. And I don't think we should use white guilt because white guilt says, as Samuel say, say says, that white guilt says, "I know that I'm better than you, and I feel bad about it." See that. That right there, that's problematic too. So it's kind of an admission of superiority, <laughs> yeah. an ironic admission of superiority. Yeah, yeah, and that's what we see in the media. That's what we see with um, Dan Cathy, which I was so disappointed to see. You know, CEO Chick Fil A um, washing the shoes of Lecrae, the Christian hip hop artist, and calling for all shoes? white evangelicals. Yeah, not Wh- the feet. His shoes. His shoes. His his white sneakers. Yeah, he was. Wiping them down on the stage, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and calling for like white evangelicals to repent for their racism. That so I guess this should not be the part of the show where I bring out my bucket of water. <laughs> I, I had planned on doing that as a. Do not do that. <laughs> do not do that. I, but okay. But, I mean, foot washing is a. Uh, actually, there are some denominations that practice that as a spiritual discipline. Just like yeah. you'd have Lord's Supper, they would have foot yeah. washing. Yeah. No, but he's doing he's doing it in this kind of idolatrous way of like repenting for white guilt that has been oppressed upon him from public opinion. Like, I don't think if, if we were be talking in 2015 that he would have done the same thing. He would not have done the same thing. Hmm. This is, this is being 
This is pressure. And this comes from this critical race theory that now we see in the zeitgeist. And there's this pressure. There's this pressure on white people. There's a pressure to communicate. Like, you, there's all these different things you have to do simultaneously, right? They're calling for you to say something immediately. But don't speak and have an opinion about this to try to understand the black experience. But don't ask black people to share their experience because then you'll re-traumatize them. Um, to um, not to ask for the education of the experiences of people of color, but don't ask people of co- don't expect people of color to educate you or quote unquote build the table in which you can sit and have a dialogue. You need to do the work on your own. So it's all these unwritten rules that are going on, mm-hmm. and that's a lot of pressure for anybody to put on themselves. And to, it's all the goalpost is always shifting. It's just always shifting on what to do as a white person. And the ultimate sin that has been exercised over all of us is whiteness. And that's just not true, you know. But that's what that's what this mindset lends to. Okay, let's take a let's get outside of the United States for a moment. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I do. Um, But also white people have have, in fact, messed something up. And it's not because they were white. Right. It, it relates to that word we were talking about earlier, ethnocentrism, the yeah. idea that my yeah. culture and my worldview is superior to yours and I must yeah. enforce it on you as a as a blessing. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's a certain era of time called the colonial period where, you know, three people in Europe controlled uh, two thirds of the world's land and 50 percent of the world's peoples. Yeah. In, in fact, they would honestly say now, I think, that, you know, they were buying into sort of the the you know, pre-Marxist beliefs. You can't really say that. It's a little <laughs> anachronistic, but whatever. Um, the the idea that there was some kind of progressiveness to skin color and superiority, right? They were buying into that. And so when they went into Africa and throughout the rest of the world, they they surmised because they governed and dressed and talked and did everything differently yeah. that they were therefore wrong and yeah. that the, Euro- the European way was the right way. So... So, I mean, politically and, and militarily, that happened with colonialism. Then kind of post-colonial era, we continue to do this with kind of cultural imperialism where – and this is kind of the American way where we're going to do embargoes or, you know, in some way try to control until you accept our ways. So, I mean, there there is some – from a global perspective, there's certainly some fairness to say uh, historically white people used to have a ridiculous amount of power. Okay. Um, in, in fact, Samuel P. Huntington writes about in his book, uh, The Clash of Civilizations, like he talks about how many countries during colonial the, – the, the, from the fall of colonialism uh, to the post-colonial period changed hands. And it's just astronomical to think how much they controlled in just a few sets of hands. Um, so I, I think I – mean, there, there, I mean there is – I'm not saying I buy everything that critical race theory or buy anything that critical race theory says – about uh, uh, whiteness and power and control and all other stuff, but there is something historically to say. Well, if you were in a European country, chances are, um, you know, you did get on the backs of other people a huge, a huge advantage. Okay, for example, uh, Egypt. Mm-hmm. You think of all the uh, obelisks and everything else uh, that you've seen. You think of Egypt when you think of those. Uh, the UK actually has more Egyptian artifacts than Egypt does. Yeah. Which yeah. is saying something because yeah. Egypt has an astronomical – like yeah. if you go to the Egyptian museum, you'll see like a side corridor and they just have stuff like stacked up. 
Yeah. Sort of like I would stack up extra pieces of wood in my garage. It's like, oh, here's another 50 of them. I'll just set them in that corridor. Um, so, I mean, through colonialism, there was a, we're going to take your stuff. We're giving you the culture. Uh, Bland and I were just talking about this before the show that I have, as you can tell, a pretty negative view of colonialism. <laughs> um, not just from a political standpoint, but from a, a, a theological and even missiological standpoint. But a lot of our folks at this church who are from somewhere else uh, have a somewhat positive view because the through colonialism, you know, missionaries, that's how they got there and brought Absolutely. the gospel. Absolutely. And so it's this weird, it's this weird trade off. And I guess I'd never considered that, that opinion um, and, until I, I, I met some of my friends here. So let's go back. We, we kind of did a drive by on Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's pull that apart a little bit more. Okay. Um, I remember I was teaching a class in seminary and I forget, I can't remember, this was several years back. I can't remember who got shot, but somebody got shot on my way into the classroom. And I uh, realized we need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my class was very diverse. Uh, probably only a third of the people were white. This is Houston for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I realized I can't just stand up here and teach because everybody's thinking about this other thing. Let's stop. Let's talk about this. Let's pray. And I think so many times people... On the on the white side, there's this big reaction to either jump into the white guilt and do weird things like <laughs> like we're seeing stuff happen. And then but the flip side is to go, well, I, I can't believe we're apologizing for everything. Stop apologizing. But there's the peacemaker in me, which says, you know, it costs me nothing to be nice. Yeah. It costs yeah. me nothing to to give an unqualified. I'm sorry. And, and I learned this living in the Middle East. Right. So many Middle Easterners are still upset about the Crusades. And part of it is. For a Westerner, that happened ages ago. Yeah, most yeah. of us don't even know when it happened, but yeah. that's that's a bygone thing. And for them, this was the moment at which kind of their civilization was taken from them and superseded. Um, and without owning necessarily in a legal way what happened, I can say, "Hey, I'm sorry." Yeah, you know that like that's not what my faith is about. My faith is not about coming into your country and taking your stuff from you. And uh, like it makes me really sad. To think that there was a group of people who claimed the name of Christ yeah. and did this. Sorry. Yeah. So there's there's kind of those two sides where to say sorry is this massive, massive problem. So anyway, in class, I realized like some people want to say black lives matter. Then some people want to say, well, all lives matter. And to say all lives matter makes it sound like you're saying black lives don't matter. Right? There, there, there's all of this. And so I said, and I'm saying this to them. I said, look, black lives matter. Yes. Like, let's just say it. We don't have to qualify it. Let's just say it. Now, sure, we could dig into the theology and go, look, we're all made in God's image, therefore we all have word, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes people need to hear something for them. And then later I talk to you, and, like, you mess up my whole understanding of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Because unbeknown to me, it's a whole political movement. Absolutely. And I just thought, man, that's a really catchy hashtag. That's a great sentiment. Like, Black Lives do matter. Yeah. We can say this. And that's what they want you to think. And that's so what they want you to think. I meet you and I hear like there's all this other stuff. And I'll be honest, you know, I might have had to Google it to believe you, <laughs> but I did. Yeah. And I was a little shocked. So tell us more about the political side of Black Lives Matter that probably the average person who's using a hashtag may or may not be aware of its larger political implications. Yeah. So once again, Black Lives Matter is a part of a leftist agenda to normalize 
um, queerness in a sense. So the the ultimate goal of it is a goal of the LGBTQ TIA plus kind of movement where um, intersectionality. <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking yes. about some of those last three. I, I right, right, right. Um, they they keep adding, so it's gonna yeah. as right. as they figure out all these other things, they're gonna add to it. So I think that's why they left the plus. But anyway, so it's this movement that is trying to equate um, queerness with blackness, um, the same struggle, um, which is you know very alarming to me um, and honestly quite infuriating. But uh, a lot of the tenets of Black Lives Matter don't hold up to the tenets of just you know black people a lot of black people they don't know they just hear the they hear the hashtag and they say yes this applies to me because i'm black and my life matters and i'll keep going on about the, you know i'll just i'll just perpetuate it without seeing that it is a movement that is trying to one of their tenets in it and anyone can go and read it now is to destroy the natural family which and that's what they're saying the destroy the natural family which makes way for um, the extinguishing of heteronormative cisgendered views. And if, if if anybody doesn't know what, you know, cisgendered is in 2020, it just means that I'm a man and I identify as a man, biologically male. Um, but they want to break that down. They want to break down uh, the patriarchal system. They want to break down men and leadership and headship of family and government. Um, they also want to empower um queerness in 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 relationships and in government um and when i say queerness i they they mean the entire spectrum of what it means to be homosexual or gender non-binary um and all of these intersectional places so black lesbian or black poly or mm-hmm. you know what have you and and that's the ultimate goal right it's not because they don't deal with black life. They don't deal with all black life. They don't want to deal with black on black crime as, as a, as a thing. They don't want to deal with abortion even, uh, because if black life matters, black life starts in the womb, right? Um, all life starts in the womb. And so, uh, it's a lifespan, right? You start out as an embryo, fetus, infant, child, adolescent. It's a lifespan. So if we don't see life as a span, if we don't see life in that sense, we'll never respect its value. And people will continue to perpetuate that abortion is a is a given choice. So anyway, they will they won't they won't deal with any of those things. They won't deal with the fact that, like I said, 60 million babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade. And that's black babies. Um, And of course, you can't deal with that if you have an agenda based on sexuality and um. sexual agenda and you know identity politics so yeah it's it's just a whole insidious movement that um is kind of permeated the culture right now and if you don't use the hashtag you are seen as a sellout or a, a traitor to or a your racist gr- yeah or <laughs> a racist yeah for sure yeah so you know you sound like the crazy uncle at the barbecue 
<laughs> are are these just your thoughts? Where where can people go to to see this for themselves? Yeah, uh, go to just go to just go to Black Lives Matter. <laughs> they have like a party platform or something. Yeah, I I you know, and I think I I sent it to you. I still have it on my phone because you know I I had to look at the belief systems. I had to see it, and I I I, I knew it was there. I had read it before, but you know, in big bold print. Um, you know, like they say right here, we make space for transgendered brothers and sisters. Um, we are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgendered privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. We build a space that affirms black women and it's free and free from sexism, misogyny, environments which men are centered, right? So once again, this is a very anti-man, anti-family. Yeah, but not sexist somehow. Right, right, <laughs> but not sexist. <laughs> and right here um, at the latter part, we we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, and to a degree mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. No speak of fathers in here mm-hmm. um, because the group is, you know, started and and headed by two lesbian women and one trans woman. Right. So, so, you know, for you and I, we see on the one hand, we would affirm Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Uh, uh, socially or morally speaking. Your white life matters, too, Brian. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, you know, so we don't have any qualms with that that notion, but yeah. then we see all of the uh, weird stuff about breaking down gender norms and family norms and all this stuff. And as Christians, we go, "Hang on, right? Uh, no, yeah, no, no, thank you." <laughs> so, I mean, how do we affirm? And, and I don't just mean verbally. And and here's kind of my, uh, I just kind of had to get off of social media for a bit. Um, I feel like a lot of people care about causes and they put it on Facebook. And if you don't put it on Facebook, you don't care about the cause. But the reality is putting things on Facebook doesn't change right. anything. So how do we really care about black lives and not get into all the gender, break down the norms, nonsense yeah. of BLM? Yeah. And once again, I think this is going to sound extremely simplistic for a lot of people. But as a Christian... And I'm not saying only do this, but I'm saying that this is a a primary. What we're forgetting to do primary is to preach the gospel. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think saying that people like, oh, you're only saying preach the gospel. But if somebody is in the middle of the street, uh, you know, a child is about to be harmed. You don't preach the gospel to the to the offender. No, I don't. I, I step in and try to help this child. But what do I do after that? You know, what are next steps? Like I just save them momentarily. Mm-hmm. But both of these people, without some kind of intervention, with some kind of with the mandate that I have as a Christian to not just temporarily save them on this side of heaven, but to ultimately help with their you know eternal state, I have to think eternally. And I think with eternality in mind, and I think only so much that we are thinking temporally right now. We're thinking about tempor- uh, temporary comforts of, um, you know, not suffering. And and when we take this message to people, 
we know that Christ has said when you when he when he calls you to himself, he's calling you to die. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. That's a that's a real thing. He's calling you to to share in some of his sufferings that he did so we can we can have this kinship with him, you know, and. I don't think that's a gospel that's being preached right now. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's like you come to Jesus, everything is going to be fine in your life. And that's that has not been true for me and other Christians who who I know, like things have become more difficult. Mm-hmm. Things have become more difficult in my life with my family at work, um, out in the world. Um, and I think we need to really understand that at this at this juncture that your faith is going to cause discomfort and is going to cause you to have to break even relationship with some people um, due to the fact that you have to love Christ more. And so, and I'm, I'm seeing that right now, that me loving Christ more than I am aligning with my people group, so mm-hmm. to speak, is causing relationships to be broken. And I'm okay with that. But I think you have to come to the place where you're okay with that. Now, I'm not breaking the relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying, hey, you cut, you cut these people off. But by and large, people who now in society disagree with you, they want nothing to do with you, mm-hmm. and we've lost right. the civility of disagreement. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge problem, particularly on the Christian side of this equation, is that we don't know how to love our enemies. Yeah, and and sometimes yeah. for a long time, our enemy has been the other. Yeah. Um, like someone who looked different or talked different or was from another place. And, you know, I experienced this myself being a missionary in the Middle East where I became kind of this oddball white guy in my community who said, no, let's not hate Muslims. Let's yeah. let's share the gospel with them. Yeah. And that put me out of the norm for a lot of people. But what's really tragic is – uh, we don't even know how to disagree with people that are on our own side or people yeah. who are brothers and sometimes, sometimes literally brothers and sisters, right. sometimes just brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. And to the degree of, well, you disagree with me, therefore you're racist. Like people don't sit down and have this conversation. No. And, and, I, and I hope I hope that our listeners are hearing like you and I aren't. I mean, we're being polite about it, but we don't agree on everything. No. Um, Probably a little bit more sympathetic <laughs> to the cause. Than, you are. Than, you really. You really are. You're on. It, it seems like this is a flip. It, it seems it really, like this it is, really does. It seems. It like really this does. Is, yeah. Um. You know, like I, I hear people talk about the poli- defunding the police. I'm like, you know. Uh, oh, <laughs> right. No. Okay. No. On that topic, I, th- <laughs> I mean, can we can we agree? And so. Uh, for, for those who might be listening to this from somewhere else, our church is located in the International District, and I live here. Blandon lives here in the International District. We're on kind of opposite ends of it, but we're very multi-ethnic neighborhoods. Yeah. Uh, my kids go to school where they're the only, pretty much the only white kids. Um, our church is also in a not an impoverished area, but uh, just a lot of low-income families, uh, a lot of very hardworking families. They might be working two jobs, or both spouses might be working, or both spouses might be working two jobs. Um, so and we have Brian like, is being polite right now because Southwest A Leaf Texas people are proud to call that a hood. Like let's just call a spade a spade. People are call, <laughs> people are proud to be an A Leaf because it gives them some sense of street cred. Street cred. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and you're right. You're right on the flip side. But what people embrace in this city is being what what hood are you from? Oh, I'm from Southwest A Leaf Texas. It's the SWAT. You know, like. That's that's, what, that's a real that. thing. There's a whole A-Leaf store, oh, you know, yeah. off of what? I think off of A-Leaf clothing or something like that. But is it people, really? 
Yeah, people people embrace that. And see, this is what I'm saying. This is this is the whole this is the whole thing. Like while you're being generous to hardworking families in the community, that is not the image that is being embraced. For sure. Yeah. For sure. But I mean that is a reality here. Yeah. Is that uh I was talking with someone who COVID is breaking out in their town. It's a small kind of country town in Texas. Yeah. And he was being pretty negative towards the internationals living there. Of like, man, they don't know how to, they don't like, they don't know enough science to stay apart. And I go, well, or they're not like at a socioeconomic place where they can take a day off work. Mm-hmm. And so they mm-hmm. have to go to work. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why it's pretty. So that's the, that's the socioeconomics of our neighborhood and where we're at. And you're right. There's, there's like the inside view of, I'm going to brag that I'm from the hood, but there's also a positive way of seeing, look, because of where we're at, things are very important, but because of, uh, things are very difficult and people are working hard. We have a lot of working poor. We have a lot of unemployed. We have a lot of homeless. Yeah. Uh, so just, you know, take any of those kind of urban problems. And, and by urban, I mean literally city problems. I know people use that to, to mean black. Right. But there's, <laughs> there's probably 150 nations in this neighborhood right. area. Draw, draw a, squ- a circular mile around here. Um, and all the time I, s- I see problems. The other day I'm out on Bel Air and there's a, there's a gentleman there. He's black. He is clearly drunk. I yeah, mean, he's he's homeless, but he's clearly drunk. He he can barely stand up. He's got three beers lying there. And day one, he's just kind of talking to nobody. People are trying to hand him money, and he's so out of it, he doesn't even walk up to get the money, which yeah. is good because he might not have been able to get out of the street. Yeah. Um, day two, I see him with a squeegee, and I'm thinking, oh no. <laughs> and then he picks up a beer in his hand. Oh, I'm like, oh boy. And uh, he pours the beer over the squeegee and comes oh to my, my car. <laughs> my AC's out right now, so I, I have my windows open. I'm like, hey, 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 no, 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 no. And he doesn't even hear me. He's just squeegeeing. And the moment, like, it's got that rotten beer, sort of like New yeah. Orleans the next morning kind of smell. Yeah, yeah. Um, all over my car now. And so the the problem is he steps, I mean, I was in the left-hand lane right by the median, which is where he was standing. Yeah. And then he steps out in traffic. Yeah. Then the light turns green, and this guy can barely stand. Right, right. And you call the police, you know, they have a taser, they have a baton, they have a gun, they have handcuffs. Uh, if this guy doesn't respond to them, they've got to use one of those things. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you think through just the kind of psychological makeup of our neighborhood different languages, people from different countries where their background with how you deal with police might be to bribe or to run away or like the police are the criminals. And so you shoot at that, you know, everybody's got a different experience with police. And then you have just the, the, the amount of homelessness. I mean, can we say that our police are tasked with too many things? Yes. Yes. We can say that we can, we can, we can, we can, we can say they are, they are tasked with a lot of different things. But the the alternative is not to send out social workers. Well, that, I'm not. I'm well, not <laughs> yeah. But that's what that's what that's what is being proposed. If you defund the police, like yeah. then you're gonna then you want to send out social workers to to certain nine one one calls. Like I, I I think that is a horrible idea. Right. But but also I mean, people who are police officers, um, they don't have the. I would say they don't have the training or the ability to be trained on the number of cases that they might come across. And at some point, 
the situation just outstrips their ability or their their training. In, in the same way, I mean, you're a veteran. You could understand yeah. this. You know, we, we train 18, 19-year-old guys. We give them a 16. We tell them, go to another country and kill the enemy. Mm-hmm. Now the war is won, and we say, all right, now pe- keep the peace. Mm-hmm. Well, hang on. That's a very different training set than the other things. So like, when you have a, a police officer, he's there to enforce the law. Yeah. And now you've got somebody that doesn't really fit cleanly into any category. What does he do? Does he arrest this guy for, I mean, he's technically in traffic. He's obviously a danger to himself. I mean, my concern is for him, not for drivers. Yeah. Um, but there's no there's no great solution for this guy. Right. And a, I mean, and to be honest, a lot of police are also vets. You know, they also come from um, military training and military right, background, right. Uh, which, you know, like you said, the the object is to protect and serve, but also eliminate the enemy. Right. Um, and so if you are seen as a threat, hostile, you know, my the natural inclination is to, uh, you know, eliminate that threat. Right. And, and that's what I'm saying. To some, I, I guess this is why, I, to some degree, I do sympathize. Because when anyone can become a threat, when a child is a threat to you, when a pregnant woman can be a threat, when, mm-hmm. you know, like somebody who seems to be selling something can be a threat. And it's a real threat. It's not. And when I it's an it's not an imagined threat. Right. It's not something like in the moment you're like, oh, I feel threatened. Not like, no, these are serious right. threats. They have a gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they have a bomb. They have they have something that they're, they're looking to shank you. They're looking to, right. to take your life. Um, I, th- I think that's I think that's. That's what's kind of facilitating a lot of these things. And, you know, just with the once again, with the work, if if you are dealing with someone that you've seen in a community with a high level of criminality and they're willing to do anything to get away from you, even kill you at that point, um, And, you know, your other partners, brothers, like just people in general have lost their life um, in interactions with said people. You're going to be a little bit more apprehensive. Now, once again, I'm not saying that, you know, people should be trigger happy and there shouldn't be uh, like some kind of equal force uh, and minimal force exerted against someone. I'm not saying that. I'm not I'm not saying. But I am saying, can we also relate to the real threat that this is my life versus your life? And that if you're going to try to take me out, I'm going to try to defend myself first instead of like. Right. Just saying, okay, I'm going to roll over and die. There are there are a lot of unfortunate shootings and killings with police officers. And, uh, you know, there are some instances where these might be motivated by race or by trigger happiness or by having a bad day or by any number of things. You know, we would call them the bad apples. Uh, but then there are some where it's an unfortunate situation where you're a police officer and, and you come into the middle of a brawl. And, you know, you've got a wife and kids that you've got to go home to. Yeah. And so I think some people and, and here's the problem with how loud the narrative has been through through some of the protests is that it, it is lacking some of the finesse and some of the nuance to understand what is the role of a police officer in a dangerous situation. And sometimes it's they have to make the, the best of a, all bad decisions. Right. And I don't think every interaction that a police officer has at that that ends in, you know, a, a shooting or a fatality of some sort is race driven. And I, th- I I don't think that that conversation is even allowed to be had either. I'm because 
everyone wants to say that Derek Chavon is this racist now. He mm-hmm. he's a racist when his background doesn't show that. Um, yes, he he did make a misstep and someone did die. But we can't objectively say it was racially motivated. There were other cops along with him that were not white. The, you have to. Right. We have to say that. We have to. Say, we have to say this wasn't. Right. We have to at least give that objectivity to it. And on his head, you see a uh, a white cop and a black man, and then you automatically assume there's some racial motivation right. behind it because the same thing happened in in Dallas that's not being uh, televised by a black cop with a white man from this similar hold and he died as well. Right. Nobody's talking about that. Right. Because it doesn't fit the narrative. Right. Well, and and here's the thing. He could be a racist. He might not be a racist. Yeah. He could be a serial killer. Yeah. He could be like, there's a, there's a number of possible explanations that are impossible to explore. And I think it's clear the way the media is rolling things out. They're rolling it out for maximum effect. Yeah. And, and there's a really great book uh, out there called trust me. I'm lying. (laughs) <laughs> uh, is Ryan Holiday, Ryan Hobby, Ryan Holiday, I think. Um, and he, t- he he calls himself a media manipulator. Mm. And he talks about the process of getting things into the media and how even using you know either comedy or anger is the most effective way to keep clicks. Because basically, clicks turn into dollars. Yeah. And, and I think you've seen this with stars who are stars for no reason. Yeah. Right. The Hiltons, the Kardashians, like, yeah. And people are like, well, why, why are they, they're not singers. They're not like, they don't do anything. Right. Uh, well, they've learned this principle that if they can keep the clicks happening, it turns into revenue. Yeah. Uh, I think Trump, whether you love him or hate him. Yeah. Um, he was a master at that. People yeah. go, well, how can someone say this? And they repost that article and they're angry against him or they're pro him. Like, man, he speaks for me, tells it like it is, you know, either way. <laughs> yeah. When we repost articles, especially we're doing it blindly, which is happening a lot. Uh, it is simply feeding the monster in the room, which I would say is partly the media. Like they are companies that run like any company does based on money. Yes. And so if they can get money by advertising dollars and that happens by how many clicks they get, they want articles that will get clicks. And yeah. so, uh, you know, we saw them rush down for the, the Zimmerman, man, this is years ago, mm-hmm. but the, the, the Zimmerman shooting, because Zimmerman sounds like a white name and they thought they were rolling up on right. a white guy right. killing a young black right. teen. And what they wound up finding was this is, you know, not that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is the kind of shooting that happens every day in the hood. Yeah. That they don't care about. Yeah. And they don't report because it doesn't lead anywhere. Right. It doesn't lead to money for them. Right. Right. So let's let's break out of all the political talk. Um, you're weird. <laughs> I am very weird. I, <laughs> and I I'm weird. It. And I'm I weird, right? It. We yeah. embrace our weirdness. Yeah. So how did you uh, – were you born this way? <laughs> no, I was not born this way. I was how not. Did you, how did you come to this place of saying, I'm going to take my anger and my angst uh, – I'm making an assumption there, right? Yeah. About race issues and something – you know, the gospel is going to cover that. Something's going to cover that. And here's now how I'm going to interact with the world. Here's the new lens that I have. How did how did that happen for you? God's grace. That's all I can say. God's grace and his illumination. Like, because once again, I, I, I came from a, a very, you know, by way, traditional black household um, in the sense that it was culturally black. Right. Um, I, I can. There's a there's a game called uh, Black Car Revoked, 
And so it's it's a game of shared experiences in the black community. And if you don't have these like similar shared, is you it know, like a game show or a, no, it's like a, a it's a game. It's or? a it's a like it's a card game. <laughs> a card it's game. a card game. Black card revoked. Black card revoked. Okay. And so if you don't get this, it's a it's a trivia game. So if you don't understand this trivia, then your black card, so to speak, okay, will be I get revoked. It. I do this with man card. Like I see a guy yeah, in yeah. flip flops. I'm like, give yeah, yeah it, right, right. So uh, I came from that, but you know, I had you know. I grew up in church, not really, but not really being beat, being churched. Um, but I grew up with, you know, black experiences of of Juneteenth and barbecue and family reunions. And but also on the flip side, being told, you know, you have to be twice as good as, you know, white people and to to succeed in the world. Or, you know, these white people are always doing this or that and the other. And. You know, it 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 um, you know, it was a real struggle for me because some of my closest friends were um, white guys and growing up. And so in an effort to be more black, I think I talked about this being more black. I separated myself from those guys. I regret that. Um, and then tried to hang out with more black people. Um, and not that I had a lot in common with them, but I tried to have more in common with them because I didn't want to be labeled as, once again, the weird black guy anymore hmm. um, who uh, like comic books and baseball and uh, Pokemon and anime and all these other things that I had in common and writing and sci-fi and fantasy. Um and the friends that I adopted had not even heard of the books that I was reading or the things that I was interested in. But um, I began to, you know, assimilate to that. And I regret all of that. I, I do. That is a that's a huge regret I have, because even at that point, I was giving into groupthink. Mm-hmm. And but then coming to the gospel uh, was so freeing, was absolutely freeing because it wasn't about me in this kind of because critical race theory is like a workspace kind of thing. It's a workspace salvation to, toward the group. You have to constantly be doing something to be approved of in this group. And the gospel is like, you can't do anything to be approved of. Christ's work is has done it, mm-hmm. you know. And so coming to that understanding, coming to God's sovereignty and resting in that and understanding that, yeah, you're made different from everybody else and as a christian you should look different and talk different than other people um and then also just growing older um it just allowed me to really rest in who i am who uh who god made me into being not i'm weird i'm not some unicorn out here like you know other millennials would like to believe themselves to be i'm not i'm not i'm not that but just understanding that you like i like what i like these are my interests. Um, I love books. I love um, different types of books. I love film, as we talked about. I love different, all types of movies, regardless if they are uh, Christian approved or not. I just love stories. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it, it was really just coming to the understanding of 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 the gospel and, and God's grace and that illuminating fact that, you know, you don't have to be like everyone else mm-hmm. to be approved of. Yeah. So. Yeah, n- not to buy into that sort of millennial unicorn thinking, but 
I mean, God has made you unique. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, it's very human to look for belonging and acceptance. Yeah. And here's where I fit in. And for people like us who are kind of out of our generation or yeah. out of our ethnic group or out yeah. of our, you know, whatever the group is we're supposed to, yeah. the role we're cast in to yeah. play. Um, you know, it's like it's like Daniel Craig. He talks about being cast into James Bond. Yeah, yeah. You know, so me and Daniel Craig, like, we share a lot in common like this. Um, <laughs> you know, but like he talks about, like, that's all people want to see him as. They don't see him as any other kind of part. They want to see him as the British suave. I'm gonna, he is an know, amazing James Bond, by the way. He, yeah, say. he's the best. For, yeah, for yeah, sure. yeah, for sure. Um, but I think that's really difficult for us because on the one hand, it's, it's human to look for uh, belonging yeah. and acceptance. At the same time, God has made each human being unique. And that's yeah. incredible because there's you know billions of us on the planet. Yeah. Um, but each of us has our own purpose, our own yeah. uh, gifting by God and own specific opportunities. And I think, you know, certainly these forces want to shape us into all be the same exact thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we need to do a part two of this. Yeah, for sure. We need to talk. I really want to talk more theology, honestly. Yeah. Um, I love talking race and culture issues, but yeah. I don't think these are like the main things in the world. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, man, part two, we're just going to talk theology. Um, Ephesians, spiritual power, breaking down walls, all that kind of, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, I really, man, I really appreciate you just as a person, but also coming on the show. I appreciate you too, Dr. A. Bear. <laughs> Dr. A. Bear. <laughs> Blandon, Blandon has me in his phone as Dr. A. Bear. I do. Uh, I do. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think uh, speaking on issues of race right now, regardless of your opinion, is so terrifying yeah. because it doesn't matter what you say. Somebody's going to shoot at you. Yeah, and they're going to pick this apart, too. They're going to pick all, all these things right. apart. They're, they're going to hone in on that I said that I like love Candace Owens. and, they're, and I it, think yeah. they're going to care more that you like Trump. Oh yeah, <laughs> depending, yeah on, depending on which group they're in. <laughs> yeah, like that. Like once again, it's gonna, it's gonna, and that's what I'm saying. Like it's a lot of people pleasing that's going on. You have to say and work and do the right thing to be approved of in man's eyes to keep your standing in the group, yep. and that's just exhausting. That's yep. exhausting. I'm not, I, I'm not gonna agree with everything everyone says. You're not gonna agree with everything I say, right. but I just, I just wish we could go back to a place in time where there was civil disagreements where people who right. like definitely were on like they were diametrically opposed but they could sit down and right. like talk it out and right. then be good right that doesn't I, exist I mean we haven't agreed on everything right I'm, I'm that makes me all the more excited to talk about so many other issues because I know we don't have to agree yeah for us to have a great conversation absolutely so anyway love you brother thanks love for you coming too, on the show alright thank you hope you enjoyed our conversation about race in the church and in our country as well. I hope you'll join us for part two. In part two, we plan on diving down into what the scriptures say about racial reconciliation and race in the church. So I hope you will join us for that. Uh, I am very interested in presenting numerous voices on this topic. So if you are interested in sharing your opinion or counter opinion, uh, give shoot me an email. I'd love to I'd love to chat with you about coming on as a guest on the show. Thank you for listening to Nations Reaching Nations. 
be sure to follow us on Instagram at Nation Reaching Nation.